Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. But before we begin, we'll just pray. Dear Lord God, I just thank you so much that um, you've brought us all here, Lord, together this morning just to be able to remember you, remember your son and his sacrifice for us, Lord, and the fact that he is risen again, and that we can rejoice in that. So let's pray you'll be with us now, Lord, as well, as we look at this book of Jonah, Lord, and just that we see what you have to show us in this book, that it won't be my ramblings, Lord, but it will be you speaking through me, Lord, and you'll point us to you in this book and to see what we should learn and be challenged where we need to be challenged as well. Your name. Amen. So it's Jonah chapter 1. Um, I have to say, I really enjoyed reading the book of Jonah. I think it's actually so exciting reading it and just seeing what a dramatic book it is um, it is a very exciting very um, packed full adventure the story of Jonah and there's a lot of greats happening in it you might know you know there's a there's a great um, fish of course there's a great wind there's a great city with great sin there's a great storm and later on in the book of Jonah there's a great scorching sun there's a great worm there's a lot of greats in the story but of course, there's an even greater God. And in the story, there's a lot of throwing as well. In the first chapter, there's um, the sailors, whenever they throw Jonah into the sea. Um, later on in the book, where the great fish throws Jonah up. Um, of course, God throws a storm and throws wind. And the sailors, whenever they're throwing cargo around the ship, um, there's a lot of throwing. There's a lot, a lot of impact in the story. A lot of things happening. And yet, amidst all the drama... Amidst all the adventure, we see that God's in control, that he's sovereign, that he knows what's happening, and that he's not taken by surprise by anything. Instead, actually, he's governing everything. And that's something that should speak to us. And that amidst all this um, chaos as well, where Nineveh are being told that they will be destroyed, and God is sending Jonah to preach this message, we see that God is not only a God of the nations, but he's also a God of the individual and how he looks after Jonah and how he looks after the sailors as well. And so it's an exciting book that's got a lot of twists and turns. Um, and it's one of those books that whenever you read the first verse, it demands you to know more about the book as well. And so I'm going to read the first verse and then look at the background of Jonah. And it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, of course, whenever you start reading, you think, well, who's Jonah? What's Nineveh? Where is Nineveh? What's significant about it? And so we need to kind of look at the background of Jonah before we go forward. Now, Jonah already has been mentioned in the Bible before this. Uh, we discover Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 23 to 27. What we discover whenever we read those verses, if this turns next for me, is that Jonah was a national hero already. Um, people revered Jonah. They looked up to him because uh, he was alive during the time of King Jeroboam II. So that would be between 800 to 750 BC. And King Jeroboam, we discover as we read 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 and 27, is that he was a very wicked king. Uh, he caused a civil split, actually, in the tribes of Jonah. Um, 
Jeroboam the first, sorry, caused a civil split in the tribes of Jonah. And Jeroboam the second was his son. Jeroboam the first also had two rival temples um, in Jerusalem to try to go against the temple of Jerusalem, um, where he had these golden calves and he would worship to the calves. And King Jeroboam the second continued in his father's sins and continued worshipping idols and leading the Israelites to do the same. And so he was a very wicked king. But Jonah was called by God, we see, that he was called by God to tell Jeroboam that he will be able to recover some of the territories that the Assyrians had taken over for Israel. And so that happened, just as God had promised. Israel were able to take back some of their territories. And because Jonah was the one who was sent to preach that message to the king, and it came to pass, by the Israelites, he was seen as a hero. They loved him because this was the prophet who went and told the king that Israel would regain some of their land of the Assyrians. You see, the Israelites hated the Assyrians because the Assyrians had control over the Israelites. The Assyrians were very powerful. And of course, the capital city of Assyria was Nineveh. And so the Israelites hated the Ninevites. And Jonah, I'm sure, hated them as well. In fact, we discover in the book of Jonah that he really did despise the Ninevites. And so for Jonah to be told by God to go and tell the king that he will conquer the Assyrians, this was a great thing for, for Jonah. He loved that message. He loved being told to go and, and preach that message. This was something that was easy to Jonah whenever he was asked to go and speak to Jeroboam and tell him that he would recover some of Israel. But the capital of Nineveh, or the capital of Assyria, like I've mentioned, was Nineveh. And Nineveh was very, very powerful. It was growing, and it was a growing threat to the Israelites. And it was growing in population. It had about 600,000. We discover in chapter 4 of Jonah that's about 120,000 infants. And it was very big as well. Its outer wall was 60 miles radius. The inner wall was only 8 miles. And the wall width was could fit about three chariots. This was unheard of back in these days. This was the largest city in the world, of the known world at that time. But it was also very, very sinful. And we discover that actually in the book of Nahum as well, where Nahum preaches against Nineveh, and he calls it a bloody city. He says that it's filled with fraud and lies and robberies and sensuousness and witchcraft and idolatry. And it was a very, very sinful very sinful nation. In fact, actually, there's a recording of one of the kings of Assyria that a, a, a historian has written down. And actually, I thought it was very interesting what this king of Assyria wrote, who was in the capital of Nineveh. And this king had said, many I took alive, talking of his enemies, many of the captives I burned in a fire. For some I cut off their hands to the wrists. From others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I've burnt their young men and women to death. This was common for the Ninevites. In fact, many of the Ninevite people, whenever they attacked their enemies, wouldn't just have them killed, they'd have them slaughtered brutally and would skin them and put their skins over the walls to try to deter anybody else from attacking. And so the Ninevites were steeped in sin. And of course, God knew this. And God had a message for Jonah, Jonah of all people, God spoke to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 and says, Go to Nineveh. 
That's the last thing Jonah's going to want to do. He, he loved it whenever God told him to go and tell the king that Assyria, a part of it will be destroyed. But this is not what God wanted or what Jonah thought God wanted. Jonah thought to himself, it's great whenever I can be asked to do things that make me look like a hero. But Jonah didn't want to do anything that made him look like a coward. And Jonah knew that he, a national hero, if he was asked to go into Nineveh, that the Israelites would look upon him with scorn and say, why is he going to Nineveh? Why is he going to that horrible city? And that's not what Jonah wanted. You see, Jonah found it very easy to follow God's will whenever it suited him and whenever it made him look great. But the last thing Jonah wanted to do was to follow God's will whenever it made him look rubbish. And whenever he was asked to do something he really didn't want to do. And to me, that was a bit of a challenge. You know, how often is that the same with us? That whenever God asks us to follow his will, if it makes me look popular, if it makes me look cool, if I come out on top, then of course. But whenever it's something that is difficult or something that is going against the grain or makes us unpopular, then so often we want to follow our own will instead. We pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Lord, your will be done. But really what we mean is, your will be done on our terms. We're really praying, my will be done, and here's my will, Lord, when you tell him what you want to happen. And so often that can be the case. And you see, Jonah is probably the last person you would think that God would send into Nineveh. Jonah, who hated the Ninevites. Surely, of all people, he would be the last one that God would want to go into Nineveh and preach to them. But actually, that's the very person that God called. And that reminds me as well that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And quite often, we feel like whenever we feel a call upon our lives, we can easily give the excuse of saying, well, you know what, actually, there'll be someone else that's much better at that than me. You know, I, I don't need to do this. You know, it's, I'm not very comfortable in that field. I don't believe it's my gifting in that particular area. I feel God's call upon my life to do a certain thing or to, to go and speak to a certain person. But you know what, I'm going to ignore that call. And very often we can tell ourselves, we're not qualified for that. Someone else is. But God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. It is God who is qualified. It is God who is powerful. And we need, to just, we need to trust in him. But that's not what Jonah does. So we discover, actually, if you look at, the, um, at Nineveh today, it can still be found. And there's a living history that shows that Nineveh is real. And it's amazing, actually, in 1839, there was an archaeologist called Austin Henry Layard who discovered Jonah, did not discover Jonah, sorry, discovered Nineveh by accident. So he was going and he was searching. He was an archaeologist. He was digging up, trying to find what he can find. And he went to a city called Mosul in modern day, which is actually where Nineveh was. And he didn't know this at the time, but he saw these large tells, which are like city mounds, um, which are made by collapsing mud brick. And so you know then whenever you dig into it that you'll find some kind of city there. And as he dug into these tells, he discovered many amazing things. In fact, he discovered these ziggurats, they were called, which are these big, large temples. And we read in the book of Jonah about how the fact that the Ninevites worshipped many gods. They were polytheistic. And we see here that there were all these different types of temples where they were worshipping different gods. They also discovered lots of clay tablets, 22,000 
clay tablets, Layard discovered. And they had a language in them as well, which is that. I'm not going to read it out. <laughs> don't know how to pronounce it, but it was the language that the Ninevites spoke. And in that, he discovered a lot about Nineveh. In fact, discovered some pictures as well. And some of these pictures, for example, a black obelisk of Shalmaneser III had a picture of Israelite kings going and paying tribute to Assyrian kings, the kings of Nineveh. And so this is to prove what the Bible tells us in First and Second Kings of all the times that the Israelites paid tribute to the Assyrians. And it's proving the authenticity of the Bible, which is amazing. But also, he wrote a book then about Nineveh and its remains. And in that book, we discover a lot of the truth of the Bible. But later on, and I say much later on, this is only in 2014, so a bunch of years ago, ISIS actually destroyed Jonah's tomb. So Jonah's tomb, where they believed that Jonah might have been buried, there was a mosque there as well that was built. And so the only part of Nineveh that the people couldn't excavate, the archaeologists couldn't dig into, was where this mosque was, because they couldn't dig underneath the mosque. The Muslims wouldn't allow it. But then ISIS blew up the mosque in their attempt to blow up Jonah's tomb and to destroy a lot of evidence. But in their blowing up of the mosque, it meant that then others could now dig where they couldn't have dug before. And ISIS had actually dug tunnels themselves, trying to excavate and trying to take away evidence. But they didn't get rid of all evidence, because whenever others then were able to go into these tunnels that ISIS dug themselves, they discovered some amazing evidence. Something they discovered was um, that there was a massive palace in there, basically, and that a king called Asar Haddon was in charge of that palace. And we read of him in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 37, along with two other places in the Bible as well. And so it shows, again, how real the Bible is and that these stories are not just make-believe, they really happened, and that Nineveh was a real place. But we'll not dwell on that too much. I'm going to go on now to look at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1 in more detail. It starts off in a really interesting way. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, that might sound quite familiar. You know, if you read the Bible, lots of books start off that way. And they're prophecies. They're prophetic books. So Micah, it says, the word of the Lord came to Micah, or, which is just the very next book. Or there's Hosea, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Joel. That's how Joel begins. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. And so whenever you start to read this, you think, well, I know what this is. This is a prophecy. And so therefore, it's going to go into the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord said, and it's going to be lots of Jonah's words to a nation, probably to Israel, going to give them some information, um, maybe going to pass on some judgment. But it's going to be a prophet passing on a message. But that's not what happens in this book. In fact, it's the only prophecy, really, which is actually about the prophet. It's not about what he's saying. It's about what he's doing because he runs from God. And so this book is very different in that respect. Now, Jonah, by the way, means dove. 
which is interesting. Dove for messenger of peace. And Jonah, of all people, you know, this wasn't a message of peace that he was asked to send to Nineveh. And he was more of a hawk than a dove, really, I would think, of Jonah. You know, he was not someone who was peaceful. In fact, he was very rebellious, very stubborn. And it says he's the son of Amatai. Amatai means faithfulness, which is, again is quite ironic, isn't it? Because we discover that Jonah is, at the very beginning anyway, anything but faithful. In fact, he runs from God's will. And so it starts with a bit of irony when we discover his name's Jonah and his father's name's Amatai. But here's what God says. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So three commands, arise, go, and cry. And he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. So he calls it a great city. And I want you to notice the word great because it come up, comes up a few times. But it shows that God is actually sovereign over the nations as well. You know, whenever you go to somewhere like Nineveh, you might be very discouraged in those times. You know, for Jonah to have walked through Nineveh, he would have had to walk by many, many temples. And it's a bit like, you know, Ellen and I were in Malaysia there recently. Um, not Morocco, like I said recently. But we were in Malaysia recently. And we saw a lot of temples when we were there, a lot of Buddhist temples. And um, we saw a lot of Islam around the place as well. And it's one of those places sometimes you can feel very disheartened whenever you walk through somewhere like that and you see so many temples and so many false, sorry, so many false gods. But we're reminded here that actually God is sovereign over the nations. And he may allow sin to happen for a time, but he is in control. And here we can see that God is sovereign over Nineveh. They might have been ignoring God, but God wasn't ignoring them. And his son, their sin had come up before him. But we see also that he's sovereign over the individual because he's speaking to Jonah and he's sending Jonah on this mission. He's telling them to call out against Nineveh for the evil has come up before him. Now, it then goes on to say, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Is that what it says? According to the word of the Lord. That is what it says in chapter 3, verse 3. But it's not what it says in chapter 1. Jonah didn't arise and go to Nineveh. It's what should have happened. It's what you might expect to read next. But instead... Jonah runs. It says, but, and you're thinking, uh-oh, it's not a good word, is it? God has just spoken to Jonah, told him to rise, told him to go, told him to cry out against Nineveh, but Jonah does the opposite. This command, by the way, to rise and to go and to cry was a rebuke to Israel as well, because Israel were not repenting at this time. They weren't evangelizing. They could have went out themselves. It could have been many people come out to Nineveh and preach, but no one was going there. And Israel were not repenting. But we discover here in the book of Jonah that whenever one man goes and preaches to the Ninevites, all of the Ninevites repent. And so it's a rebuke to Israel. And it can be a rebuke to us sometimes too. We can be quite callous. We can be quite um, set back and comfortable in our ways. And whenever we feel that God is telling us to go or to speak to someone, or to even move and go somewhere else and speak there, we can feel that this is not for us. And we can be very settled in who we think we are before God. And we can deceive ourselves. And sometimes God is telling us to get up and go and to serve him and not to be lazy and sitting in our own comfort whenever God gives us his will. So Jonah doesn't want to go, of course. So he rises that sounds good, doesn't it? Because Jesus said, arise. 
but he rises to flee to Tarshish in chapter 3. Now, Tarshish is um, modern-day Seville, so it's southwest of Spain, but it was the most western point of the known world at that time. And isn't that true for us as well? Often, whenever you flee from God's will, you go the very furthest you can go. You know, we don't just leave a little bit. We keep going and keep going further and further from God's will. So that's the 1040 window, by the way, um, which is meant to be the area of the world that is the least evangelized to, with the least Christians. And you can see the different colors as well. So the green for Muslim, yellow for Hindu, red for communist, and orange for Buddhist. And very often we can think that, you know, what if God was to send you out somewhere like that? Somewhere where there was very few Christians with very little support. If God sent you somewhere like that, would you go? Or would we think, no, I don't want to go there. Would we be like Jonah and be stubborn? You know, and here you can see, of course, that Nineveh was in that window at the time as well. So here's where Jonah lived in Gap Heifer. And here's where he was told to go to Nineveh, 500 miles away. But instead, Jonah goes down to Joppa and makes his way to Tarshish, which is 2,500 2, miles away. So he's going the furthest he could possibly go, the furthest in the known world, because after that is the Atlantic Ocean, and they didn't know what was beyond that. So it's as far as he could possibly think of going, that's where he went. And he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, in verse 3. That will come up a few times in chapter 1 as well. And that's what's really happening. That he is not just fleeing from what he wants to do. He's fleeing from God. He's fleeing from God's will in his life, from what God wants him to do. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, not literally. It's not that God is not there. It's not that he goes to Tarshish and says, oh, where's God? Oh, he's not here. That's great. I'll pack up my bags. He knows that God is everywhere. I believe that Jonah would have known that as a prophet, that God is omnipresent. But he was fleeing spiritually from the presence of the Lord. And so often we can do that too. God is everywhere. And you might tell yourself, well, I'll go here instead because sure, they need spoken to you as well or whatever. You know, Jonah might have made himself some excuses and said, well, the people of Tarshish, they also need to hear the gospel. They also need to hear about God. But he was going against God's will. And very often we can do that too. We can go against God's will knowingly and lie to ourselves, tell ourselves we're doing the right thing. And actually we're leaving the presence of the Lord, which is pretty scary. But he went down. Now, now it's something you'll notice a lot as well, going down. And this is significant because it shows the spiritual moving down as well that Jonah is moving down spiritually he's moving away from God and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going from Tarshish you remember whenever we looked through the book of Ruth there was a lot of going down as well with Elimelech whenever Elimelech was moving down to Moab and that showed that a spiritual moving away from God too and you see that all over the Bible you know there's Samson he moved down to Timnah to marry a Philistine and that was a spiritual moving away from God. Abraham, whenever he moved down to go to Egypt um, during the famine, and he lied and he said that his wife was his sister. And that was a spiritual moving away from God. Or David, whenever he looked down onto the floor, or onto the roof even, and looked upon Bathsheba, and that was him moving down spiritually as well. 
There's a lot of moving down in the Bible that shows a spiritual moving away from God. And here's what Jonah's doing. He's moving down to Joppa and finding a ship that will go to Tarshish. It's funny, isn't it, sometimes how easy? I'm sure that ship was really easy to find because whenever we're running away from God's will, Satan can make it easy for you to do that. You know, there's a ship just there and easy. Jonah can jump on that ship and leave. So he paid the fare we read on. I think that's interesting as well because we pay the price of disobedience, don't we? There's Jonah. He's paying the fare for the ship. But to me, that is symbolism of the fact that whenever we disobey God, we pay the price. And here, Jonah's going to be paying the price. Isn't just going to be the price of a boat. He's going to be paying a much bigger price as the story goes on. And he went down, there's the word down a second time, into the ship. So now he's went down into Joppa. He's now went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish. I think that's interesting as well because so often, whenever we go down, we take others down with us, don't we? We don't just go down by ourselves because others might have respect for you, might look up to what you say or what you're doing, and you wouldn't even know he's looking at you. But whenever you start to move away from God, people notice, and you can take them down with you. And so that's something to be wary of as well, that as Christians, we have a responsibility to show Christ to those around us. Whenever we stop doing that and we get lazy, others can be impacted too. So he goes down with these sailors to Tarshish. Again, it says, away from the presence of the Lord, a spiritual moving away from God. But, now it's the second time we read the word, but first of all, Jonah, whenever he's trying to run from God, but now it says, but the Lord. It reminds me, we cannot escape God, can we? We can try, but where can we go from God's presence? In Psalm 139. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now that word hurled or throws comes up a lot too. God is throwing a great wind upon the sea. There's a the word great again. And there was a mighty tempest or a great storm on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And here we can see that God's sovereignty again. First of all, we saw that he's sovereign over the individual, that he's sovereign over the nations. And now you can see that he's sovereign over nature as well. God has caused this great wind upon the sea and he's caused this great storm. It's not mother nature doing it. You know, I'm looking at, um, I'm teaching in my school at the minute um, about nature, I suppose you could say, um, as part of my animal kingdom project in school and a lot of it looks at um, how the animals respond to their nature around them but David Attenborough there's a lot of videos with him talking about the animals I, I really like watching David Attenborough I have to say but it is funny how often David Attenborough refers to nature as mother nature or nature did this or nature did that but you know what it's not nature doing these things he's attributing all the happenings on earth as if it's nature's choice, that Mother Nature has a certain mind, but it's God who is in control, and it's God who controls nature. It is God who's sovereign over all things. And here we can see the first miracle as well. There's going to be a few miracles we see in chapter 1, the first one being that God has caused this wind upon the sea. Now, it's not because God's hand was involved, because God's hand is always involved. 
that's not what makes it a miracle per se because in everything that happens God is involved in every that's why we pray for the weather isn't it in everything that happens each day God is involved but this is a miracle I believe because God is interrupting the usual with the unusual I mean the sailors wouldn't have went on this 2,500 mile journey if they knew it was going to be stormy and actually we look it up and other historians call this the sailors season this was meant to be a time of great peace on the waters and that's why the sailors were going they were quite good at interpreting the weather but actually God interrupts the usual with the unusual that's what a miracle really is you see and it's always a sign as well of who God is but God is in control of all things and he's created everything and he's created law and order so whenever God wants to break that law and order, he can. No one else can. But God who's made law, God who's made order, and who's helping us then understand how things work. You know, that's why science is science. We can, science is a great thing. We can study how the world works. But that's God who's created those laws to make the world work in that way. Whenever God wants to interrupt that law, he can. And that's what he does here. He interrupts the law of the sea, of the sailor's season. And he causes a great storm, the greatest storm that sailors have ever witnessed. And the, mar the mariners, mariners were afraid. And of course they were. They were terrified. But it reminds me that sometimes we can be religious or we can be thinking of God only in a storm. Isn't that right? They're terrified. But whenever they were leaving, they probably were thinking nothing of God. Like we discovered later on they didn't even know of his existence they believed in other gods and they each cry out to their god so they're religious only in a storm and i think that's interesting they, they cry out to their gods and they hurl the cargo so their gods were only one method they cry out to their gods for help and then before you even know it they start doing something themselves trying to sort out the problem themselves and that can be us too sometimes we can call out to God for help. And sometimes it can be the last resort that we call out to God for help. And actually we're trying to sort out the situation in our own strength and in our own minds and what we think works before really consulting God about it. And we can say, well, I did pray first, but maybe you just prayed a very quick prayer, thought nothing of it, and didn't really mean much by it, but actually you're trying to sort out the situation yourself. Are you really giving over your situation to God? Are you really giving over your heart, your pain, whatever's happening in your life to God it's not that we shouldn't do anything after we've prayed to God but we do it through his strength knowing that we've given all of it over to him and it says and they hurled the cargo I think that's interesting because the first hurling was by God God hurled this great wind and this great storm and now they're hurling cargo reminds me we can't outdo God though you know they're trying to throw as well like God threw but it's not going to work for them they're throwing all this cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But, another but. So now God has intervened, but then Jonah intervenes again. Jonah had gone down. You know, in all this fear that the sailors are feeling, Jonah doesn't seem very afraid. He's gone down again spiritually, but he's gone down into the inner part of the ship. So he's went down to Joppa, he's went down into the ship, and now he's went down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down so now he's lying down as well and was fast asleep that shows his spiritual condition too doesn't it he was completely ignorant to god's will 
and to his grace. And it's scary when you think of this because there's Jonah lying down sleeping in the middle of a crazy storm that is threatening the very lives of all those within the ship. Surely Jonah should be afraid too. Surely Jonah of all people should be afraid because he knows and should know that this is the hand of God. But he's become completely apathetic to God's will. And that happens too. Whenever we run from God's will, we can, we can be filled with apathy. We start to stop caring so much about what's happening around us and to the pain that people are feeling around us and to the spiritual condition of those around us. We become apathetic and we can also become quite ignorant and quite just taking it for granted that God's grace is there. You know, we, we pray for God's grace, but we can just take that for granted and just expect it and think that we have a right to it and become apathetic to God's will and to his kingdom and to the spreading of his word. Do we really care about those around us enough to share his word with them? Do we realize that these people need to hear about Jesus? They need to hear about grace and forgiveness, that God has chosen to use his people to share the message. Do we care about that? Do we care about the condition of those around us enough to tell them of Jesus? Do we care that they're condemned to hell? Or do we care more about how we look, how we feel, the pleasures we go through? And here's pretty interesting, verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? God can use pagans to wake us up sometimes. And what a text for the sleeping church as well. He says, What do you mean, O sleeper? Often when there's drink and drugs and war, the church can sleep. There's abortion, cheating, porn, and the church sleeps, can even get involved in it. There's disease, friends and family who don't belong to God, and we sleep instead of standing up and serving him and fighting for his will, caring about what God cares about. And here's what he says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, your, your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Sorry, that we may not perish. I think that's interesting. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us. Of course, God's giving a thought to them. He's the one who's causing the storm. But it's quite ironic. And here again, the pagan is preaching to the prophet and he's saying, pray to your God. They've already been calling out to their gods. Jonah hasn't even begun to pray yet. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. I think that's interesting because you might think, oh, look at these silly, superstitious stealers. You know, they think that they have to cast lots and roll dice to try to work out the signs. But actually, I think they're wiser than most people because they don't believe in random accident. And, you know, God is in control of chance as well. He's sovereign not only over the nations, over the individual, over nature, but he's also sovereign over chance. And they want to know where this evil has come from and on whose account it has come upon them. So we'll read on then, verse, or the end of verse 7. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, showing that God is sovereign over chance. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So there's a second miracle, by the way, the fact that God was in charge over the dice roll. And they start to ask him really excitedly, 
What is your occupation? Where'd you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? You can see they're excited, they're rushed, they're wanting to try to get the answer out from quick because the storm's increasing and they can die any minute and they know it. And so they're trying to get out of him information and they're going to be pretty surprised by the answers, I think. You know, what is your occupation? He's a prophet. I mean, what? He's the one running from God. It's like a fire, firefighting, sorry, a firefighter running into a fire with nothing, just running into the fire for the fun of it. That's what he's like, just like Jonah's doing. He's a prophet, but he's running from God. It's crazy. Where does he come from? He comes from Israel. Jonah should remember that. Israel were delivered from Egypt. We should never forget our salvation either and where we come from and what God has delivered us from. They say, what is your country? His country is a land flowing with milk and honey. Shouldn't forget his blessings either. Of what people are you? He's of God's people. These, these are all things that Jonah seems to have forgotten whenever he's ignoring God's grace. And here's what Jonah says to them. I am a Hebrew. Here's the first words of Jonah, by the way, in the chapter. First words of Jonah, and we can see that he's a nationalist racist. You know what I mean? First thing he wants to say, oh, I'm a Hebrew. You know, I'm a Hebrew. Look at me. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the bee's knees. I'm the one who is of God's people. And you can see in that his hatred for the Ninevites. And I fear the Lord. That's ironic, isn't it? He's the one person who's been sleeping when the rest of them have been filled with fear. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. I mean, hello? He made the sea, and here you are in the sea. And, in, and you, can, you can see here that the, the men who are listening are thinking the same thing. They're thinking, what on earth are you just saying? You are in the sea, and you're running from the God who made the sea. And they are filled with great fear. They were exceedingly afraid. And they're fearing God, but Jonah's not. And they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Or does it come up a third time? He's leaving the presence of the Lord. That's what's really happening. Because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. There's another, that's a good witness opportunity for Jonah. He's saying, What shall we do for you? What shall we do to you? He should now tell them, you know what you should do? You should turn the ship, go back around. I've been ignoring God. I'm, I'm going to repent now. I'm going to turn from my sin. But no, that's not what Jonah says. In verse 12, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Another throw into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. You might think, oh, it's pretty heroic. He's recognized that God is in charge of the storm. He's telling them to throw him into the sea. That's anything but heroic. It's stubbornness. Because Jonah should have turned the ship. He should have said, I'm, he should have repented. But instead, he's more willing to die than to, than to pass the message on that God has given him to the Ninevites. He says, For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Very often, the sea in the Bible is a picture of God's wrath, waters of judgment. Um, there's a song about that. Actually, Leonard sent me. It was really good. It's all about the waters of judgment and how God is actually using the sea very often in the Bible as a picture of his judgment. We, of course, we think immediately of the flood, don't we? And how the ark is a picture of salvation. We think of the Red Sea and how that was judgment upon the Egyptians. We even think about how Jesus, whenever he was baptized, that he was signifying that he was taking in the wrath of God for us. And that whenever we are baptized, that's symbolism of the fact that we are going through death and resurrection um, and that we are going through the waters of judgment. And 
willing to follow God no matter what, but, and that we are rescued as Christians from the lake of fire. But here we can see that the sea is a picture of God's judgment, but this judgment is on Jonah, and Jonah knows it. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. Now they go back to their man-made efforts. There you can see the men rode hard. I don't know if Jonah did. I think Jonah maybe was just still sitting there, being apathetic. They're rowing hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, because they were relying on their own strength, not on God's. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, so it's their last resort, they call out to the Lord. Do we make it our last resort to call out to God? It should be our first to come before him and ask him for his strength and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. They call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. And there they have noticed God's sovereignty. And the first prayer we read in the Bible is prayed by the pagans. But they come before God and they ask him for his forgiveness. And they ask him for his grace. And they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. This time this is linking to God's plan though. They're doing what they believe God has asked them to do. And the sea ceased from its raging. There's a third miracle. The sea stops, showing God's might, but also his mercy. Verse 16, then the, me then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. There's true fear, fear of the Lord. And in this fear of the Lord, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There's a fourth miracle, that God has even used Jonah's disobedience to bring these sailors to repentance. God can bring anyone to repentance. He doesn't actually need us, but he chooses to use us. So we should be open to his will. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's the fifth miracle, by the way, and it's the one that most people get caught up with. They get all, I mean, critics find it harder to swallow the story of Jonah than the fish did to swallow Jonah. You know, so often they look at this story and they say, well, this couldn't have happened because of the fish. This is the fifth miracle in, this, in the chapter, by the way. God is sovereign over nature, over time, over events, over chance, over the individual. He's in control. And time's up. I was going to go into a little bit of um, some examples that may or may not be credible of other events where people might have been swallowed up by great fish and so on. But I don't think that's important, really. Um, someone else might want to look at that. But what's important is the fact that Jesus actually had said this himself, and this is something that Glenn will look at later on, that he had said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So if Jesus believes that this happened, that's good enough for me. If it's, in the, if it's in the Bible, that's good enough for me. And it's God's word. But here we have seen five amazing miracles by God, and each one of them are to help Jonah see him and to turn back to him. God is pursuing his own. And I think that's amazing because whenever we run from him, God still pursues us with his love. God is still a great and mighty God, but he's also a God of mercy. And we can see here God's mercy to the sailors and to Jonah because he prepares a fish for Jonah and doesn't let Jonah die despite Jonah's own stubborn pride. And we'll see later on tonight, of course, at this belly of the fish, three days and three nights, how that's a sign of the resurrection, but we'll leave that for Glenn to talk about tonight. 
What's important, I believe, is that we can see here that this is a great God. Yes, there was a great storm, a great wind. There was a great fish. There was a great city, which were great in their sin. But ultimately, we have a great, great God who is sovereign over time, over nature, over space, over events, over chance, and over our lives. And we should put his will first, follow him, and let him be the centre of our lives. Let's stop following our own wills. Let's stop putting ourselves first. Let's stop being so selfish that we care less about the world around us and we're apathetic to those around us. Let's put God first in such a way that we chase after his will and we care. And just as we were hearing this morning, that we look upon sheep without a shepherd and we have compassion for them the way Jesus loves and cares for the world. So we'll just pray as well. Dear Lord God, I just thank you so much that you are a great God. You're a mighty God, but you're also a merciful God. That you're a God over nations, but you're also a God over the individual. That you're sovereign over every single event, and even what seems like chance, that you're still in control of that as well. But in your sovereignty, you have a plan. I just pray, Lord, you'll help us, Lord, to seek after your face, to look for your plan for our lives and for your will for us. Help us, Lord, to follow that will, even whenever it means that it doesn't look easy for us, even whenever it means a lack of popularity, even whenever it means ridicule or scorn, that we put you first, that we chase after your will, and that your will will be done, and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In your gracious name, amen.